As we come tonight, as I said earlier, we are continuing into part two of Sermon 1 in a new series on the Apostles' Creed. Now, I made the statement a couple of weeks ago when I started this series that I was fairly confident that I was preaching a series of messages that have, has never been preached in a Baptist church in Somerset, Kentucky. I still stand by that. I've asked several pastors, have you ever preached on the Apostles' Creed? To which a couple of them said, the what? So I knew... I knew that I was in uncharted waters here, at least as far as Baptist churches go. And that's sad. I realize that we talk about sometimes proudly, and, and maybe not with such a good reason, that Baptists are not a creedal people, that we don't follow creeds, we follow the Bible. And I'm all for that. But I, I do think that creeds are a way that give us, as we talked about last time, a, a simple roadmap that leads us to the greater road map. We have the atlas in the creed. We have the detail map in the Bible. Uh, you might say we have the cliff notes in the creed. And we have the full-blown, unabridged version in the Bible. And it doesn't hurt to know both. As a matter of fact, it does good to know both. Because the, the, the uh, cliff notes will kind of give us a guiding to understand what the greater part of the Bible is. So over the next few weeks, and, and I hate that we do this, I hate we have these breaks in the summer as far as the sermon series goes, because next week we'll have another family night at home, and the next week I'll be doing a, a wedding, in, or at a wedding, my son's wedding in, in Alabama, so it'll be another couple of weeks before we get back to it again after tonight, but then we ought to have some pretty clear sailing for the rest of the summer to get to this. Before I start, though, I do want to, uh, lest you have spent all afternoon worrying about the biblical literacy of your pastor uh, I do want to confess to you that I know there are tw uh, 12 tribes of Israel, not 10, okay? Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to do public speaking and, and get into a groove and get all excited and get moving through it, and just somehow you say something that is so far off the wall that you wonder how in the world I ever do that. After service this morning, only one person. Now, I don't know whether to take that that y'all just really didn't know that there were 12 tribes. And you took my word, there were only 10? Or if, uh, if you were thinking, oh, that poor fellow, I don't want to show him how ignorant he is. But either way, I do know there are 12 tribes. And somehow I'm trying to figure out a way to put a little edited thing at the front of this morning's sermon when we put it on the web and say, the pastor knows there are 12 tribes, even though in this sermon he will say that there are 10. So we'll see how we do that. But there are 12 tribes of Israel, and Levi was one of those, and Levi got no land. The other 11 did, not the other uh, nine. I assume... I was just so caught up in, in uh, Abraham paying a tenth, a tithe, to Melchizedek that in talking about that tenth, I just got it wrapped up and I went right on into the tribes with it. So lest you think I am just totally biblically illiterate, I wanted to straight, uh, straighten that out this evening as we get started. Too bad the others aren't here to hear that too. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Now we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, as I said, as sort of an outline. Uh, last time we talked about the importance of creeds and confessions. I brought here tonight some props. When I walked in, I saw people look panicked that this was going to be a, a part of my sermon this evening. But I brought this just to show you something. This is Philip Schaff's work entitled The Creeds of Christendom. And in this, Philip Schaff has done a pretty good job of cataloging and giving some commentary to every creed that the Christian church has ever subscribed to. Some, even some heretical creeds that he puts in there and shows where their errors are. But that gives you an idea. Three volumes 
of how many creeds and confessions there have been by the Christian church since its inception uh, over 2,000 years ago. I also brought this green book as sort of a side prop, and it's by William Lumpkin. And the title of this is Baptist Confessions of Faith. And, and as I talked to you last time, I mentioned several confessions as we got into the sermon a couple of weeks ago. But what, what Lumpkin has done, he's gone back to the mid to early 1600s, which, by the way, is where I would date the beginning of the Baptist church uh, as far as one that is visible and known and called Baptist. And uh, from about 1600 on, he has cataloged the Baptist confessions of faith and has put them in that. So there have been a lot of confessions and there's been a lot of work done in confessing the faith by Baptist groups as well as many others. But the word creed has always been a word that has caused Baptists for some reason to kind of squirm a little bit. I guess when we think about that, when Baptists hear the word creed, they think of very high liturgical churches, and Baptists are more of the free church tradition, the low, I hate to call it low church, but I guess that's what it is as opposed to high church, but, but the, more, uh, the, the more free church tradition that does have a lot of liturgy, we have our liturgy, we go through our liturgy every week, we talk about not having liturgy, but if you go to 99% of the Baptist churches and look at their order of worship, we do everything pretty much exactly the same, that's pretty much a liturgy. But we hear creed and we think of liturgical and, and we think, oh man, we're, we're not that way. When in reality, the word creed is from the Latin word credo, which simply means I believe. Now, if you say that I don't have a creed, I'm going to really feel bad for you. Because if you say I don't have a creed, you're saying I don't believe anything. I don't have anything to believe. Creed is merely just an expression of faith. It's an expression of your beliefs. It's an expression, if you will, of your theology and your doctrine. That's what Peter did for the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Look down at, at verses 29 through 32, really 30 through 32. Uh, but there the, uh, Peter answers for the apostles. Remember, they've been pulled in by the authorities. And they have been threatened and they have been uh, warned and uh, they have said to Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, listen, we want you to stop speaking in that name. They wouldn't say the name of Jesus. They wouldn't say Jesus Christ. They just would say, we want you to stop speaking in that name. Why, you've, you've turned this town upside down. you filled Jerusalem with all your teaching, and you're intending to bring this man's blood upon us. And they said, just stop it. To which Peter responded like this for the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. And then in verses 30, 31, and 32, Peter gives a creed. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now Peter didn't begin that statement with do what you do whatever you want to do we must obey God rather than men and then say I believe, and then spout off those things in those three verses. But that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying this is what we believe to be the truth. This is what we believe to be absolute reality. And no matter what religious tradition we have, no matter what kind of religious heritage we have, this is what we believe that God has revealed in Jesus Christ. And he covers the Father, he covers the Son, he covers the Holy Spirit, he covers salvation, he covers Christ's offices of Prince and Savior, and he covers his purpose to grant repentance. I mean, he go, this is a great creedal statement 
that the apostle Peter gives in Acts chapter 5. And, and so if you go through your Bible, and I challenge you to do this in the New Testament, even in the Gospels, go through your Bible in your New Testament and, and find things that are creedal statements, things where the apostles say, I believe, or, or where even Jesus makes statements about what they should believe. Those are statements of I believe. Those are statements of creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed, which we stated last time, and we want to be clear you understand, is not a, a creed that was written by the Apostles. Although some uh, tradition and some uh, mythology grew up around it, that it was Paul and John and the other Apostles who actually wrote it, they didn't write the Apostles' Creed. It appeared somewhere in the mid-200s uh, after the resurrection and death, of, death and resurrection of Christ. But I will say to you that based on what the Apostles' Creed says, which we will go through over the next weeks, you find in the Apostles' Creed almost identical information as you find in this statement by Peter in the book of Acts and in other places that we'll look at in the weeks to come, other scriptures as we take the, the atlas map and put it on top of the full topical map, the Bible, and seek to understand the, the landscape of Christianity and what Christianity has historically held. That's important to understand. But the Apostles' Creed does begin with the words, I believe. The Apostles' Creed is most often used as a unison reading in those liturgical churches and sometimes in Baptist churches. We've actually read it here a couple of times. We read it in unison. You notice that when you start out, you don't say when you're reading it in unison with the body even, we believe. Because the Apostles' Creed is a statement of individual faith. It's a statement of, of, I believe this to be true. And if we just said, we believe, you could kind of read it together and say, oh, well, we believe this, but I don't personally believe it. The Apostles' Creed is trying to get us to understand and make a clear and emphatic statement about the basics of our belief. I believe. Those are two very simple words but they carry with it such great meaning. The first line of the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and, the, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Then he talks about his conception, he talks about his death, talks about his burial and his resurrection, and, and other things. And then he gets down to the latter part and says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then works its way through that. And we'll talk about that, but those two words, I believe, are what I want us to focus on and think about tonight. Let me give you a little test, or let me take a little survey here. How many of you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Can I see a show of hands? Some of you don't believe that? Oh, okay, well, I finally got those hands up. Good, thank you, Braden. Yes. All right. Now, why do you believe that? I dare say that I don't think there's anybody in this room that could attest to me, oh, I was there. I saw the inauguration. I saw him put his hand on the Bible. I saw him profess that he would uh, carry out the duties of the office of president, so help him God. I don't think there's anybody in this room that can say, oh, I was there and I saw it. No, we believe that George Washington was the president, first president of the United States because we've heard stories about it. We've heard history about it. We've studied about it in our school books. We've, we've learned that this general who was a general in the Revolutionary War was ultimately chosen to be the first president of the country. Now, in reality, there are certain things around George Washington that may or may not be true. Uh, I remember reading a story one time of 
George Washington, and I have to have one here in my pocket, uh, took a silver dollar, and he took that silver dollar, and he flung it across the Potomac. I'm not throwing it to you, no. <laughs> David's ready to catch it. That he threw it across the Potomac River. Well, there's, there's no real evidence that he ever did that. That was just sort of an apocryphal story that grew up talking about his greatness and his prowess and his, his strength as a general. There's another story that's even more famous probably and one of my favorites, and that is when George Washington was just a wee lad. And, and one day somebody cut down a cherry tree in his dad's yard. And his father went to George and he said, George, who cut down the cherry tree? And George, because George was an honest man, and because George is a man filled with integrity, and because that qualified him to be our first president, George said, Dad, I cannot tell a lie. I took my trusty hatchet, and I cut down the cherry tree. Well, there's no real evidence that George ever really did cut down the cherry tree. But yet we have no trouble believing that George Washington was the first president of the United States based on the fact that we have read history, and there has been a sort of an unbroken chain of, of of teaching that that was the case. But I want to tell you this morning, when I ask, or this evening, when I ask you if you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, I'm not asking you to make some kind of affirmation of faith whereby you would say, I believe in the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States. There is no religious uh, element to that. There's no faith element in that you say, boy, by believing in George, that George Washington was the first president of the United States, that's going to change your life somehow. You, you can believe it or not believe it, and you can pretty much go on living life about like you do now. So when we talk about belief, we talk about I believe, we have to understand there is a depth to belief that goes beyond just believing something is a fact that goes beyond just believing something like George Washington was the first president of the United States. And when you get to this creed and it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, there's at least four sermons I'm going to bring out of that paragraph because it's a statement of intense faith, intense belief. It's not just a, an, a, a casual Ascent, although there is at the beginning of that an ascent, a mental ascent to that being a reality. So let's talk about what it means. I think there are four things that faith and this understanding of it means, and I want you to see those, and, and then we'll be done this evening. First of all, as I was getting ahead of myself, the first thing about I believe is that faith means an ascent. You first of all make the statement that you believe that certain things are true. I believe that God is. I believe that God is a reality. I believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth. I believe that he has done all of these things. But the truth of the matter is, there are a lot of people who believe that God is who have not expressed true faith. I mean, James even says in his epistle, in James 2.19, listen, you say you believe in God, you do well. So do the demons in hell, and they tremble, and yet they're not saved. There's no reality of spiritual life in their life. They say, I believe Jesus is, is the Christ. I believe God is, is God, and he is the creator of all things. They know that mentally, but it has no effect on their life spiritually. 
But the first step of understanding true belief and true faith is understanding that it is an ascent. This is an essential starting point. You can never have faith in something that you don't believe really is. Uh, we'll look at that in Hebrews. Hebrews says those who come to God must believe that he is. That's a starting point. You have to believe that he does exist. So there's a, a mental ascent where it begins. The second thing about faith is that faith means trust. It goes more than just the mind saying, I believe this to be true. When I say I believe in Jesus, I'm not just saying that I believe there once was a man called Jesus who walked the, the streets of Palestine, who walked the streets of Jerusalem, and that's it. When I say I believe in Jesus, and Christians say we believe in Jesus, we're, we're, we're saying that we believe in something particular, something that will change our life, something that we are willing to say, I want to stake my life on this as being a reality, and I trust it to be so, and I place my trust in it. If you want to get a good example of faith, and we won't do it tonight, because we'll be doing it in a few weeks in the study in Hebrews, go to Hebrews 11 and into the the 12th chapter to verse 3. And there you find what has been deemed the, and called the, the great uh, hall of fame of faith. And you have all of these people that, that the writer of Hebrews says, and they trusted God, and they believed God, and they walked with God. There is this idea of trusting that goes along with the concept of faith. Christians don't just believe, they believe in something. We live in a day that basically says, listen, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe something. You know, it doesn't matter what you have faith in, as long as you have faith in something. So just, just believe something. So it might be a, a new age mysticism, it might be Islam, it might be Judaism, it might be any number of things. And, and people say, well, listen, as long as you believe, as long as you've got faith, just have faith. Christians say, no. Your faith, your trust is to be in an object and your faith is only as good and only as, as effective as the object in which it's placed. For instance, if you're sitting here tonight in this room, I doubt that this is the case because uh, I know you pretty well. But if you're sitting here tonight and you say, you know, I, I believe in Jesus and I'm really, I really believe that if I'm a good person, that no matter what else happens, I'll, I'll go to heaven when I die. That somehow you are putting your trust, your faith, in your ability to be good, in your ability to carry out good deeds from your innermost beings, then I would say to you, you have a misplaced faith that will not do anything in your life at all. Faith must be in the only object that is worthy of faith, and that is in Jesus Christ alone. That's why we believe that. There is no salvation. The scripture says there's no other name by which man may be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And when we say, I believe in God, the creator, and I believe in his son, Jesus Christ, we're saying more than just a mental ascent, and we're saying more than just we, we kind of believe in something nebulous and something indefinite. No, we believe in something specific. We believe in someone specific. And that's where our faith must rest. There's too much faith in faith going around today. There's too, much too many people just say, well, if you just believe, everything will be all right. Really? No, that's not true. 
If you just believe, you may believe yourself right in the pit of hell by not believing in the proper object. So faith is assent. Faith does mean trust. And thirdly, faith means commitment. When I say I believe in God and I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe in the Holy Spirit, I'm not just saying those are concepts that I believe are real. I'm saying I am placing my commitment in that reality. I am trusting my life to it and making a commitment to it as being the basic reality of life. Think about baptism. When you were baptized, you may not have thought about this very clearly, but when, you, when a Christian goes into the baptismal waters, they are in essence declaring a creed. They're in essence saying, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're making a creedal commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the, the pastor who, or whoever baptizes you says in those words, I baptize you now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you're buried in that watery grave and you're raised to newness of life. And there is that reality of, your, of the person standing there saying, I am making a commitment to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the great triune God. I am declaring that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And I am making this kind of commitment. From this day forward, I stand with Christ. Though all the world may stand against me, though all the world may say, why, that's foolishness, that's silliness, that's ridiculous. I'm standing with Christ. And I'm making the commitment in those baptismal waters, and so did you, whether you realized it or not, that from that day forward, you will never turn back. You'll never look back. You will walk in faith and in faith in Jesus Christ. That's why I, 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 I get fearful sometimes when when. People want to have, have come to me and want their small child to be baptized at five, six, seven years of age. And I make the statement to them. I say, don't you understand the commitment that's being made, the creedal statement that's being made. I believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in the gospel. And I'm ready to commit my life from this day forward to that gospel and to that Lord, to the triune God. I just don't think a child that age is able to make it. I know some 25-year-olds that aren't able to make it who are very religious and want to be religious and, and are in church all the time, but they fail to understand that I believe means commitment to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, faith is obedience. Faith is obedience. I love how the Apostle Paul... I. I preach on this every chance I get. You know that. You know how much I love Romans. But in, in Romans chapter, five, uh, chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul writes this, through whom we have received grace and the apostleship, listen to this, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul says, here's the purpose of my preaching. Here's the purpose of my apostleship. Here's the purpose of my ministry, to bring about the obedience of of faith. Faith, I believe, carries with the, the statement I believe carries with it a concept and an element of obedience. One of the old hymns that we sing uh, from time to time, but it, it's, it, I remember singing it as a child and never really grasping the, the emphasis of it, but the hymn, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust 
and obey. Faith brings about obedience. Now, obedience does not save. Obedience is not, we don't keep ourselves obedient enough to where we walk in righteousness and walk in goodness and, and, and thus we find ourselves okay with God because of what we've done. It is on the basis of grace through faith. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 2. But when one has truly believed, when the Spirit of God has truly captivated a person's heart, and they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and God has done a work of regeneration in that person's life, in that person's heart. Obedience is the natural outworking. It is the fruit of the believer's life. Now, we don't do it perfectly. And we will blow it. I blow it more times than I ever want to admit to you because you'd think, boy, what a bad pastor we have. But the reality is we don't do it perfectly but let me tell you this, I can tell you without any equivocation that my heart's desire is to obey Christ fully. My faith leads me to a desire to obey Christ fully. I don't do it perfectly. You won't do it perfectly. But I, I want to know what is your desire, what is your passion, what is the driving point of your life? James again made the statement in, in his little book of James. He said, you know, that, that we are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We're not just sitting around and hear the word and say, oh, boy, isn't this refreshing? I'm just being fed the word of God so much and it's great. But we're to let that feeding come into our heart. We hear the word and then we do the word. We are obedient to the word. James even said, you, you say you have faith without works? Well, let me show you. I, I'd rather see faith with works. Let me show you my faith with works. Then you show me your faith without works, and I'll show you a dead faith. That, that's a real consternation to a lot of people. That really troubles a lot of folks. They say, oh, well, I'm not really involved in works. My, my life's not really a, a life lived out in obedience, but I've got faith. Well, James says, maybe not. Maybe you just got intellectual assent. Maybe you're just saying, oh, I believe God is, and I believe Jesus is, but there's no change of heart by the internal working of the Holy Spirit. Faith is not just about believing in God. As I said, the demons do this. It's about trusting Him and having Him take hold of us and transform our lives. I think there's a classic illustration of this in the life of John Wesley, the uh, father of Methodism. Uh, John Wesley writes these words in his diary. I love it. He says, On May 24th, 1738, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldergate Street. I, I like that same. I went very unwillingly. You ever been brought to church unwillingly? Well, that's the way John Wesley was. And I, I did love something I read this week. A friend of mine was witnessing to somebody in a restaurant this past week or two weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention, and he said that the waiter said, well, I don't want to go to church, I don't go to church, because as a child I was made to go to church, and I'm not going to church anymore. And Mark looked at him and said, did your parents make you brush your teeth? Well, yeah, do you still brush your teeth? Yeah. He didn't believe, but I thought that was a pretty good illustration. But anyway... You obviously didn't think it was all that good. John Wesley said, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. Now, I love the Epistle to Romans that Luther wrote in his commentary on Romans. 
But I got to be honest with you, I don't know what I would think if I walked into a church and somebody was just reading the epistle, Luther's epistle to Romans. But that's what was happening. Someone was just reading the preface to the epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine, he didn't say what time it started, but about a quarter before nine, while he was thus describing the changes which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now even before that meeting, Wesley had believed with his mind that God could forgive sins. But afterward, he experienced that forgiveness for himself. That's the difference. That's the difference in saying, I believe God can forgive sins, but I believe that God has forgiven my sins. That God has done a work in my heart, a work in my life through faith in Christ that changed everything. For some, I believe in God may mean no more than I think there may be a God somewhere. And I'm telling you, that is not a faith that saves. Believing in God in the generic sense, brings nothing. We must believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, the earthly manifestation of God. And we must not just believe that He exists, even Christ. But we must believe with all our heart that I have trusted Him and His work has changed my heart. I like the way Wesley put it. I, I, my heart felt strangely worn presence of the Holy Spirit as we look at this as we look at this Apostles Creed I pray that our hearts will be strangely warmed by the truth and the reality that is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone amen well we'll pick up with it again on the 17th, Lord willing, or 18th, 18th of July. As we pray tonight and prepare to leave, I want to uh, pray for our children, our youth as we go. And is Scott in here? I see Todd. Oh, there you are. You're hidden. Todd and Scott, y'all come up here. And uh, I want to just have a prayer for the, and I want them to just kind of be symbolic of the two groups that are going. And I want to lay my hands on them. Come on up here with me up here. And uh, I want to pray for them and pray for their safety. I was going to either side of me. And uh, you join me in this prayer. Would you do that? Father, we are grateful to you tonight that our young people and our children have the privilege of going off to hear uh, your truth proclaimed and to just to separate themselves for a few days from their game boxes and their Wii's and their computers and their cell phones to just really focus on you. And Father, I pray that you will help them to do that and teach them your truth and grow them in your grace. Father, I thank you for Todd and I thank you for Scott and their leadership in ministry here that goes far beyond just with youth and children in education, in discipleship, in family ministry in so many different ways. Father, I just pray that in these days to come that you will uh, 
will strengthen them and use them for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.